Well, good morning, everyone. And if you want to follow along with me and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27, I just want to mention that our sign-up sheets are on the bulletin board. So if you go out into the foyer on your left-hand side, or if you're coming in, to be on your right-hand side, rather than having to try to go into the main office, we have uh, clipboards hanging on a bulletin board, and you can just sign up. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for the power of the Holy Spirit that's able to transform our lives. And Father, we are so thankful that you have only just begun with us, no matter how long we've been walking with you, and that you plan on bringing us on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that one day, when we will open up our eyes in glory, Father, how we long for that day, whether it be the rapture of your church or whether it be death and resurrection to new life in you. And so, Father, I pray that as we break open this portion of Scripture, you would use it to minister to us, to encourage us, and help us to recognize that every part of your word is just an illustration of how we may draw closer to you. And so come now, Lord, and anoint and use me to minister to these your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You know, um, I think one of the things that we all realize is that the more we acknowledge our sin, the more willing we are to acknowledge our sin, the greater we see our need. And the greater we see our need, the more we realize how much we need Jesus. I mean, Jesus is awesome. The fact is, as often as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm so thankful that I don't go to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, I'm just so sorry. Forgive me for what I've done. And he doesn't say to me, well, you've told me that a dozen times before. Uh Uh-uh, not this time. It's never that way. He always forgives us and he purifies us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness and draws us into a closer relationship with him. And as we study these portions on the tabernacle, you know, sometimes they might seem quite boring and quite detailed, but if you really take time to, to contemplate every single article of the, of the tabernacle, you realize how it relates to Jesus Christ and his ability to bring us into full relationship with God by having all of our sins being forgiven. In fact, we're going to be looking at the brazen altar. Uh, do you have the brazen altar it's, uh, up there, Chuck? It's the, I think it's the last slide I put on there. Um, maybe it didn't get on there. I don't know. Well, that's the next one I want to go. Uh, uh, uh. No. Maybe it didn't get on there. It should be um, the altar sacrifice. That's all right. You can go back to the original one. That gives you more of a of a detail. But anyway, the brazen altar was literally for the people to make a sacrifice offering of something from themselves for sin. So we're picking up in Exodus 27 verses 1 through 8. And you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square. And that would be, the five cubits would be approximately eight feet by eight feet. And the height shall be five cubits, about five feet. And you shall make its horns on it, on its four corners, its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Take notice of that. And you shall make its pins, uh, its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire uh, pans. You shall make 
all its utensils of bronze. And you shall make a great for it a network of bronze. And on the network you shall make four bronze rings and, uh, at its four corners. And you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway to the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Then the poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards, and uh, as it was shown you on the mountain, so you shall make it. Now, one of the things I just wanted to mention here that I, I find interesting, there's over 20 times in Scripture in, in, uh, that we find that, is, that the Lord talks about poles that are being used to carry, um, you know, the articles for the temple. And some, the ones that are inside the holy place are made, are overlaid with acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And the ones outside, uh, the articles that they carry outside of the holy place were made of acacia wood and they were overlaid with bronze. But in all 22 or 23, I can't remember uh, times that it mentions the poles for bearing up the articles of the tabernacle, the length is never given. And most of the pictures you see are inaccurate because the pictures you see usually have poles long enough that you could have one guy you know, on each side in the back and one guy each side in the front. You have to understand some of these articles would weigh five, six, seven hundred pounds, some of these uh, articles, these fur furnishings of the tabernacle. And so the poles would have been quite long. I mean, you probably would have had five or six guys in, uh, on each side of each pole, you know, uh, in order to carry, in order to bear it up. And, of course, that encourages us that uh, isn't it wonderful the Lord gives us each other to bear up our burdens and our problems and to encourage us in our walk with the Lord and our sacrifice to him. I think it's a beautiful thing. Now, as I mentioned last week, all the furnishings inside the tabernacle were overlaid with gold representing holiness or the deity of Jesus Christ. And all the articles outside of the tabernacle were overlaid with bronze, which represents sin and the need for, need for judgment for sin. And remember the description of Jesus Christ in Revelation, his feet were as burnished bronze in the fire. And it's talking about judgment. Now understand, judgment is not um, something that we should fear because of Jesus Christ. Judgment is something that has to come in relationship to sin. There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to doing those things that are wrong. But the reality is that that judgment is overlaid with the mercy and grace of God for you and I. And so that's such a wonderful thing. It's not a matter of just saying, well, I've sinned. I guess there's no hope for me. I've sinned. Forgive me, Jesus. And he does. It's just such a wonderful promise that we have. Now, <clears throat> the holy place uh, pictures our communion with the Lord. Remember you had, um, well, there's our brazen altar. <clears throat> Remember you had uh, the, the court where the sacrifice was offered on the brazen altar, the brass altar. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you went into the holy place where you had the menorah, the table of showbread, and the table of incense, and you had priests that ministered in there. Then you had the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, covered with the mercy seat. And it was a progression into that relationship with God. In other words, before you could even enter the holy place, a sacrifice had to be made for sin. 
Then after that sacrifice was made for sin, you were able to enter into the holy place where you could have a more intimate relationship with God. You could, you know, feel the light of the menorah, the light of his Holy Spirit upon you. And you're able to offer up prayers to God in the table of incense. And you're able to partake of all that he's offered us from the table of showbread. But then, as the high priest, you and I are able to even go beyond into the holy of holies where we can be in the presence of God. And something that's interesting, when, as we continue our study, how many priests went into the Holy of Holies? How many? One. The high priest, once a year. And so if you want to enter into the Holy of Holies, you have to go there yourselves. Group prayer is wonderful. Families praying together is awesome. But you have to have your own time in the Holy of Holies, by yourself, to be with the Lord. And that's where you really have that intimate communion with Him. In Hebrews, if you want to turn there quickly, chapter 10, because as entering into the Holy of Holies, you and I can come before the, the throne of God with boldness. And the word boldness, by the way, as it's translated from the Greek, means confidence, it means assurance. It's not boldness, well, here I come because I deserve to. No, it's mean I have confidence, I have assurance. So in Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, listen to this, through the veil. Remember, in order to go into the holy of holies, you had to go through a veil. Through the veil, that is his flesh. Wow. Through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, through accepting, accepting his forgiveness and his omniscience, we're able to enter right into the Holy of Holies and be with the Lord and worship him. How amazing is that? And so in approaching our great God and King, though, there always has to be, if we're going to the outside again, there always has to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. There has to be. And our Lord Jesus Christ, our friend that sticks closer than a brother, our very purpose for living, he is the one who made that sacrifice for us. Because here's the point. We had nothing to offer for forgiveness of sin. These sacrifices that we're reading about here in Exodus are just symbolic. But we really had no, no sacrifice we could offer. Because here's the thing. How can we offer ourselves up for sacrifice for sin when we ourselves are the sinners? But there's one who came to this earth who never sinned. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's our all in all. And he willingly went to the brazen altar and offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin. An atoning sacrifice. In Ephesians 5, 2, it says, And walk in love, as Christ also, listen to this, has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. He offered himself for us. 
Again, in John 1.29, and I always wonder what it must have been like that day when Jesus was coming down into the Jordan to be baptized, and John the Baptist saw him coming. And in, in, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold. I mean, that word behold is dramatic in the Greek. It's not like, hey, look. I mean, it's behold. You better look, you know. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, if he takes away the sin of the world, that means anyone can be saved. But the thing is, they have to be saved. That we must be saved. Now, as the brazen altar stood at the entrance of the tabernacle before anyone could enter into the holy place, the brazen altar for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. And we need to be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Isn't that what Scripture tells us? And um, in, in Romans 12, 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, if you take notes, Romans 12, 1 and 2, um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, listen, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, you don't just get saved and that's it. You get saved, you're a living sacrifice to do the work of the Lord, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's just your reasonable service. That's nothing special. That's just your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and, per, and, and, and perfect and the perfect will of God. So we can't be transformed to this world. We can't allow ourselves to be, and even as believers, sometimes we see that. We were um, watching, um, actually it was a speech, um, I can't remember her name, uh, the one we watched, what is it, the black girl, Candace Owen, I don't know if you ever heard her speak, she's unbelievable, but we were listening to her, and she was sharing that the immorality in, in, the, in the black community is, is awful. 78% of black babies are aborted. She said the black community should have 1.8 million more people right now than it did four years ago. Overall, 70% of the homes in the United States are in fatherless homes. What's happened? You know, I think maybe the church has been too quiet. I'm not talking about going out and beating people up and, you know, and, and, and doing all kinds of, of... I'm just saying standing for our moral right, standing for what is true. But so often when we're in groups and people are talking about, this is what I believe, this is what I believe, we're kind of like... But maybe we should say, not in any kind of an angry or aggressive way, just say, but this is what I believe, because this is the truth, it's God's Word. And be able to share, you know, and to stop the immorality from expanding the way it is. But of course, it brings us to the place in time and in history that we know the rapture of the church is going to occur. I mean, the, the world is, is absolutely degenerating to the most vile place we can imagine. 
I mean, we read about the Canaanites and what they did. It doesn't, it's not any worse than what we're seeing right now. Not any worse at all. And yet God said, go in and destroy them. God's judgment came, and God's judgment is going to come upon this earth as well. Now, the thing we have to understand is we're supposed to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. You know what the problem is with a living sacrifice? When the heat's turned up, it tries to crawl off the altar. Right? And so, Lord, here I am. I just give myself to you. I just want to serve you, Jesus. Then the heat's turned up. You know, difficulties and problems because of your commitment. And also, maybe I'll just kind of squeal off the altar here a little bit. I'll come back later. But the fact is, we're supposed to offer ourselves fully as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that's why the Lord tells us in his word that we're supposed to offer ourselves daily. Take up your cross daily. That's offering yourselves daily to the Lord. And the thing that God desires of us is that we would live a life so committed to him that every day we're willing to die a deeper death. Less of me and more of you. Isn't that a song we sing, some line in that? Less of me and more of you. Human love is probably one of the most difficult things that we can offer as a sacrifice on the altar to God. You might be thinking, what do you mean offer human love? Well, think about this. Human love is self-deceiving, self-motivated, controlling, easily hurt, and therefore easily angered. You can never really fully love the Lord with human love. But that's the only love we've ever known and experienced. But God is telling us we're supposed to experience a love greater than human love. And I remember reading the book. The first time I read it, it was kind of confusing to me. I had to really think about it and and pray about it, and the Lord showed me the full understanding of it. But if you've never read the book, Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, it's an allegory, you want to read it. And so here she is. She's coming along in her walk with the Lord. She's really developing. And one of the last things that happened is she was in this beautiful, quiet place with the Lord, and she had to crawl up on an altar. And, and the Lord came himself and grabbed a hold of all the roots of human love and pulled human love out of her that she could be filled with agapeos, the agape love of Jesus Christ. We love him because he first loved us. He fills us with this love. And now no longer are we trying to do things to build ourselves up, to make ourselves feel good, or even to try to make others feel good. Now the love we express towards humanity and those around us is God's love. And you know what God's love is? He wishes for none to perish. That's God's love. I mean, have you ever had someone that you think, oh, I hope they don't get saved? I mean, if we're honest, there might be someone from time to time we felt that way. I I hope they don't go to heaven. But the reality is that God wishes for none to perish, but for all to be saved, all to come to repentance. And our heart attitude should be the same. If we really have the love of God in us, I desire for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to come to the Lord. Now, the very purpose of the altar, of course, is to bring us into intimate fellowship with the Lord, that we might be able to draw closer and closer and closer to Him. It isn't human human striving. It isn't ritual. It isn't religious experience. We have to understand it's all about relationship. God has given us His Word, 
And he's given us his Holy Spirit that we might have relationship with him. If you want to turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to begin with verse 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now, Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth. And there were many reasons he was doing it. They really didn't understand the whole concept of this old body dying and going to heaven and so forth. But anyway, in 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 1, it says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, talking about the human body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. I mean, how many times have you said, oh, Lord, the rapture could happen right now, I'd be so happy. Well, so often when we say that, it's when things are tough. Oh, Lord, please come right now. But you know what? When things are their best, we should be saying, oh, I wish the rapture would happen right now. Our desire to be with him should be greater than any desire of this world. Verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, but because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Think about that. Mortality, this human you know, existence we have, might be you know, swallowed up by life eternal. You know, one of the things that's interesting is we realize that in most cases, nepotism is something to be looked at at a very negative in a very negative way. Nepotism is giving um, special consideration to those that are close friends or family and so forth. But you know, in God's economy, nepotism is awful. Boy, he loves his kids. And, and just think of what he lets us get away with because we just cry out for repentance and forgiveness. He loves us so much. And so we have to realize how important relationship is. Um, you know, and I was writing this, I was thinking about the fact that, and, and some of you might not know this, some of us, we definitely know it already. But, uh, and those of you who are just getting into uh, empty nest syndrome, yeah, I don't know if this encourage you or not, but you will spend, the average couple spends more time, more years without children than they do with children. Isn't that wild? The average couple spends more years, usually quite a few more years, without children than they do with children. And so the relationship you have with your spouse is so important. If you're just giving them cursory, you know, time and, 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 and you know, and of your heart and of yourself, then when your kids are gone, man, that can really cause a problem. But if a couple develops an intimate relationship with one another, even when their kids are gone, they're still going to be close. And actually, it ends up being best for the family. Everybody wants to come home for all the holidays and this and that. And, but anyway, that's stupid to say. But it's just, the reality is, in our relationship with the Lord, so often we want our relationship to be like in a mass and with just a whole group of the whole family you know, of God. And that is wonderful when the whole family comes and worships together. But what's your personal relationship with God? What's your intimate relationship with God? Do we go into the Holy of Holies every day? I mean, think about it. How many of the, of the priests and how many uh, would have loved to have gone into the Holy of Holies to see what it was like? And they couldn't. 
was only the high priest and only once a year. But you and I can go into the Holy of Holies every day to be in the presence of the Lord. Confession and repentance are so important because that is offering up the sacrifice of our sin to the Lord and for his forgiveness. I need the Lord, I don't know about you, every day. Every day I need the Lord. And the greater my need, the greater my dependence upon him. And the more I depend on him, the more thankful I am because he always loves us and he's always there. So many people are fearful of becoming dependent on others. But you want to know something? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm dependent upon Vi. I don't know what I'd do without her. But you want to know something? I'm more dependent on the Lord. And I sure don't know what I'd do without him. I really don't. Now, uh, in verse 9, we're getting into the tabernacle. And this is uh, Exodus 27, verse 9. You shall also make a court um, of the tabernacle. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made with fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. That's about 166 feet. So if you see the sides of the tabernacle here, that would have been about 100, the, the, the court walls would have been about 166 feet. And they're, they're about 8 feet high these curtains were. And that's where the sacrifices were brought. The courtyard is where the brazen altar was and also the basin where the lever, the brazen lever where the priests would wash themselves before they took the, the sacrifice, <clears throat> the blood of the sacrifice into the holy place. And see, so you have all the animals there and so forth. <clears throat> so anyway, um, uh, the court made um, with fine woven linen, 100 cubits long uh, for the one side, about 166 feet. And his pillars, and his 20 pillars, and his 20 sockets shall be uh, bronze. And that's what the curtains actually hung on. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. And that's interesting because uh, even though it's the place of judgment, it's the place judgment goes to relationship. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long. So both sides were about 166 feet with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. Verse 12, and along the width of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings of 50 cubits. That's about 83 feet across approximately with 10 pillars and 10 uh, sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall also be 50 cubits. The hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three uh, sockets. And on the other side, there shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets for the gate of the court. And there shall be a screen between uh, 20 cubits, about 33 feet. This is like the doorway that the, the priest would take the sacrifices from the people in to the courtyard, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And it shall have four, four pillars and four sockets. All of his pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, and their hooks shall be silver and their sockets bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and 50, uh, and the width 50 throughout. And the height shall be five cubits, about eight feet, made of fine woven linen and sockets bronze, and all the utensils of the tabernacle and all its services in uh, um, all the pe its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be bronze. You see all the detail there, but yet 
the Bible tells us that we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are, you know, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the fact is, just like the Word of God tells us, every part has its purpose. Just because you're not this part doesn't mean you're not any... Every part has its purpose. And so when you think of the tabernacle, you know, you think of the tabernacle in the wilderness, you're thinking, well, I'd like to be the Holy of Holies. <laughs> or I'd like to be the altar of incense. Or if you, you know, didn't think you were quite that worthy, you might be thinking, I want to be the brazen altar. But I don't think there's too many people that would say, I'd like to be the tent peg. Lord, I'll be the tent peg. But guess what? If you didn't have the tent peg, the curtains would fall down. Every part is necessary. Whatever part in the body God has placed you, whatever part it is that he's placed you in, be thankful because that part is necessary. Now, while the priests ministered on the inside of the courtyard, the people were left on the outside. And they could only ask someone else to bring their offering to the Lord for them. But through Jesus Christ, we can offer up our own offering, our own sacrifice of self to the Lord, and we can actually enter into the Holy of Holies. Listen to what 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 tells us. But you are a chosen generation. It's talking about all of us. It's talking about believers. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You see, a priest is someone who mediated between God and man. And so man would come to the gate, as you see right here, man would come to the gate, that, that was the doorway, and he'd offer a sacrifice. The priest would take it in and offer the sacrifice and embrace an altar, and then the blood that was shed would be taken by this priest who washed himself in the, in the, in the basin, in the brazen lever, and then he would go into the holy place. And so that's what a priest was. He stood the gap between man and God. Here's the thing. We no longer need a specific priesthood. We no longer need a priesthood. We are all priests. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are the people of God. You as a believer are a child of God. You are a royal priest able to enter through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, offering up yourself to the Lord right into the Holy of Holies and have intimate communion with him. Wow. Wow. I mean, how important is it to have that intimate communion with the Lord? And then we're finishing up this morning with verses 20 and 21. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light. Notice it says pressed oil. Um, To cause the light to burn continually. And that's in the menorah, the the candlesticks. In the tabernacle, meeting outside the veil, uh, which is before the testimony. In other words, you had the holy place. That's where the menorah was. That lit it all up. Remember, all the walls were gold. So that menorah. And when we were in Israel, we saw the menorah for the new temple. And it's it's not like the little one we have in the desk here. It stood up and it was big, you know, like that. And you can imagine that olive oil burning and with the gold walls, I mean, that place would have just sparkled with light. It would have been unbelievable. And um, 
to cause the lamp to burn continually. Verse 21, in the tabernacle of meetings outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to this generation on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, the olive oil was not to be bruised. The best olive oil you understand um, is not bruised. It's just pressed, pressed lightly. Because, you see, if you take the olives and you just <clears throat> press it and grind it and, you know, to pieces, then you're going to have pieces of the olive, olive itself going into the oil and mixing with it, and it's not going to burn as pure. But it was just, you know, bruised, just pressed, just so the oil would come out. And I find that interesting in light of Isaiah 53 and verse 5, and it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Now, the greatest healing isn't a physical healing. You could have someone who is like Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a paraplegic. And she has served the Lord faithfully. And she's going to enter into heaven just loving, you know, I mean, you know, you understand what I'm saying? She hasn't been healed physically, but she's been healed spiritually just like you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been healed. By his stripes we're healed. And what a wonderful thing to know that. And the purpose of the olive oil, of course, was to bring light into the holy place. And Jesus is our light, right? The Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am. Notice, I am. That's the Tetragrammaton. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This life. Not just physical life, not just anatomical life, but life, holy life. And then in John uh, chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then when he left, the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and we now are the light of the world. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. Talking to the church, you are the light of the world. By his spirit, we're the light of the world, his Holy Spirit. The oil always represents the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit burning within us, the Holy Spirit burning and illuminating through our life to those around us. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, the church is the menorah of the world today. And the oil is the Holy Spirit. And both the lamp and the oil have to work in conjunction with one another for the proper light to be illuminated in the world. And so we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be willing to be a lamp to the Lord, not hiding our light, not try, trying to maybe deceive others into thinking how, what we really feel, but really standing for the truth, really standing for the truth. You know, what would you do, for instance, if someone came to you and spoke something that was contrary to the Word of God? 
Would you say something? Now, I'm not talking about being arrogant and being belligerent and, 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 and that because that doesn't solve. If you act that way, you're taking away from the gospel. You're taking away from, from who Christ is. But are you willing to answer? Are you prepared to give an account and a reason for the faith that is in you? Are we ready? Are we willing? Well, the fact is, the Holy Spirit, He, the third person of the triune nature, a very God Himself who indwells our heart, our cardiac, our inner man, is able to animate us and is able to give us the light in order to minister to this world. There's never been a time that this world has need, needed more ministering to. And here's the thing. We all realize that the world and this nation and this world, is we're coming to a place that God's judgment is going to come and the rapture of the church is going to occur. But you want to know something? Vi and I talked about this the other day. When the church is taken out of the world in the rapture, the raptos, the great snatching, taking away into heaven, the world is going to have some kind of explanation. <clears throat> well, I think, you know, the aliens came and took all the bad people out. I, you know, who knows? But there's going to be some kind of an explanation that they're going to be given. But when we have shared our faith with others, and we've shared with others that God is going to take his church out of the world, they're going to say, I'm not going to buy any of that because it's too much of a coincidence. coincidence it's, it's only these Christians that were taken out of the world. And that's why as we study Revelation with an open mind, we realize many, many people, probably one of the greatest revivals will take place after the rapture because people won't buy the lie. And they'll die for it. They'll give their lives for it. But are we willing to give our lives right now as a living sacrifice for the Lord and for his work? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you so much for your word and for the truth we find in it. And Lord, I ask that we would lay aside every excuse. We would lay aside every reason that we have for not doing what we should be doing. And just follow you, Lord, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And loving you with every fiber of our being that many might be saved and brought into the kingdom of your light. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my dear friends.